I'm Ed Adams, and this is the Weekly Genealogy Toolkit, the podcast that helps new genealogists get the most out of their research time and avoid the most common pitfalls. Since about 2014, one of the biggest gateways into the world of genealogy has been commercial DNA testing. For many, it starts with the desire to know more about the rich tapestry of your ethnic heritage. But quickly it seems to expand to wanting to know more about the specific individuals that came before you. For others, it comes from a desire to discover your biological family. In fact, it's never been easier for people who were adopted to do that and to do it on their own. Fair warning up front, this is going to be a longer episode, and I'm honestly only going to scratch the surface. But I hope I can give you some things to think about that will help you get the most out of your DNA test. Now I'm willing to bet, for some of you out there listening, you got a DNA test kit as a Christmas present several weeks back. If you jumped at the opportunity and did the test and sent it off quickly, you'll likely be getting your results in the next week or two. I hope, at least. Processing times can vary widely throughout the year, and the processing time is mostly a reflection of how many orders they have to deal with. So if you don't get your results soon, hang on tight, they're coming. But what exactly are you going to get? And how do you use that information to help in your journey to fill in the blanks about who you are? Before we can get into that, let's talk a little bit about DNA and how it's inherited. We probably all took high school biology, so I hope I'm not insulting anyone's intelligence, but understanding some of the basics of how you came by your DNA will help significantly as you look at how to understand your testing results. To start with, your DNA is kind of like your body's instruction manual. You have 23 pairs of chromosomes, with each pair containing one chromosome from your mother and one chromosome from your father. These chromosomes determine all the key biological traits about you, from whether you've got blue or brown eyes down to how likely you are to sneeze when you walk outside on a sunny day, and everything in between. 22 of those pairs are called autosomal DNA, and the 23rd chromosome is the sex chromosome. On the 23rd pair, women have two X chromosomes and men have one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. If you tested at Ancestry or MyHeritage, you only tested your autosomal DNA. If you tested with Family Tree DNA, you may have gotten one of several different tests. For today, I'll focus on the typical autosomal test, but I'll at least talk about what some of the other testing options are. When looking at your autosomal DNA, It's important to understand from the get-go that your DNA family tree, that is, the list of ancestors that have contributed DNA to you, is much smaller than your genealogical family tree, that is, the tree that you build using documentary sources that you find either online or in physical repositories. At first glance, it doesn't seem to make sense. If I got half of my DNA from my mom and half from my dad, and each of them inherited their DNA in the same fashion, then it would seem to follow that while I may not have gotten much DNA from my six times great-grandfather, I should have at least gotten at least a small percentage. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how the inheritance of DNA works. When looking at a relative as far back as your six times great-grandfather, the likelihood is that you got absolutely no DNA from them. To add to the complexity, though, while you may not have gotten any of his DNA, your sister might have. This is because of a process called recombination. The way that DNA recombines is actually a fairly dense topic, but you can think of it this way. Your mother gave you half of her DNA, 
but that DNA wasn't split 50-50 between her parents. Through recombination, you may have gotten 23% from your maternal grandfather and 27% from your maternal grandmother. Now, that's a fairly minor difference between the two, but each generation back, that difference can more or less multiply until fairly quickly you get to a point where some of your ancestors may have provided you with no DNA whatsoever. That's probably enough inheritance background to get at my first point, as you look at what to expect from your results. They may not match what you expect to see. If you have a strong family tradition of history keeping, you may know that you're mostly German with a little bit of Scottish and English mixed in. But once you get your results, you may find that your ethnic estimate reflects the German majority, but only shows a very small amount of Scottish and no English at all. Instead, you're showing some Danish, Norwegian, or Swedish DNA. Please don't make the conclusion that either the DNA analysis or your family tradition is incorrect. They're quite possibly both 100% correct. But how? Maybe you have pretty good documentary evidence of your English heritage. Why wouldn't it have shown up on your ethnicity estimate? Well, in the case of this example, it's a two-part answer. The first part of the answer is that if you have an ethnic lineage that is sufficiently small with respect to your overall family tree, because of recombination, you may not have inherited any DNA to show up on your estimate. This is why it's incredibly useful to have your siblings test if you have any, as well as your parents. In fact, the more members of your family you can test, the more you can use those results and make some real discoveries about your family. But hang with me now, because the second part of the answer is that while it looks like none of that English ancestry came through to you, it may have. Remember that these results are based on comparing your DNA against what Ancestry calls the Ancestry DNA Reference Panel and what MyHeritage calls Founder Populations. These are groups of people who have tested their DNA and have well-documented lineages that are stably located in a single region. With a large enough pool of these reference populations, a genetic profile of people from that region can be established that your DNA can be compared against. What this means is, the estimate can sometimes expose historic migration patterns that you might not expect if you're thinking within a genealogical time frame. Let's take the previous example. From your own documentary research, you know that you're predominantly German with some Scottish and a little English mixed in. You were surprised to find no English in your ethnicity estimate, but instead the presence of small amounts of Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish ethnicity. It's possible that this could be reflecting some of your existing Germanic heritage, as there's been contact between the Nordic peoples and the people of Central Europe for a very long time, but it's also, I, I might even say likely, that the Nordic ethnicity is reflective of your English heritage. Your autosomal DNA can provide interesting results that take you back many hundreds and even over a thousand years, so you need to think along those timelines when looking at your DNA. Over the course of hundreds of years, through the early and high Middle Ages, Nordic peoples had an extensive genetic influence on the populations of eastern Scotland and England. Perhaps you've heard of the Vikings. In fact, much of eastern England was for some time referred to as the Danelaw, so named because of the influence of the Danes who arrived there in the mid-800s. So if perhaps this scenario is true for you, that Nordic ethnicity could point to the possibility that your English ancestry came from the east of England and were predominantly of Nordic stock. But it certainly doesn't prove this. It's just a clue that can point you in a direction. So you've gotten your ethnicity estimate. 
Now what? I mean, it's fun to look at and read about the various cultures you descend from. But aside from entertainment value, is there any real genealogical value here? The answer is yes, but not a huge amount. If you think about your quest to understand your family history as a kind of a treasure hunt, what you really need is a treasure map. Your ethnicity estimate is kind of like a treasure map, except it's not drawn at a scale that's going to be a lot of use to you all the time. Think of it as a global map with some broad arrows drawn towards some broad regions saying, your treasure's here. Sure, it's better than nothing, and depending on what you knew or didn't know before getting started, that can still be a tremendous help, but it's not going to tell you how to get to the treasure or where to dig. Your ethnicity estimate will point you in a general direction and help you eliminate some possibilities that might have otherwise wasted your time, but beyond that, it's going to be mostly of entertainment or personal value. That doesn't mean that DNA testing isn't immensely valuable in genealogy, though, because it's the exact opposite. There is a lot more to your DNA test result than your ethnicity estimate. A great source of information comes from the ability to sift through your DNA matches, but you're probably going to need to learn some more before you'll be able to really leverage the power of your matches. It's well out of the scope of a 10-minute podcast episode to walk you through the details of effectively using your matches, but the overall process is actually not that complicated. Once you get your results, go look at your matches. They'll be arranged in the order of relation to you with the closest relations at the top. The closeness of your relationship to the match is determined by the number of shared centimorgans. A centimorgan is just a unit of measurement for genetic linkage. Hop over to dnapainter.com. It's easy to remember, but I'll put the link in the description anyway. So hop over to dnapainter.com and go to the shared centimorgan project tool and look at a chart of possible relationships according to the amount of shared centimorgans. It's a great place to start. Like most genealogy tools, the more you work with DNA, the less you're going to need the shared centimorgan tool, but it's really invaluable when you're getting started. This gives you an idea for each of your matches of how you may be related. Think of this as clues to investigate. You can try starting with that user's shared tree, if they have one, but remember that you have to verify the information in their tree. You can compare the shared centimorgan tool relationships for that match against their tree and build out their tree on a scratch pad, or on your own private tree, and see if you can follow the map to your tree. I'll often end up using information from the trees of my matches, but I usually try to start with my tree and go the reverse route, because it allows me to start from a known valid information. But where do you start? If I share 253 centimorgans with a match, the shared centimorgan tool shows me 19 possible relationships. There's actually more possible relationships, but for now, we'll take the basics, and 19 is plenty. I usually do a combination of two things. First, I'll look to see if the user has a shared tree, and I'll just look at their shared tree and see what surnames are involved. If any look familiar to me, this gives me a sense of what direction to look. Secondly, each of the potential relationships on the shared centimorgan tool shows a range. For example, the second cousin relationship could be anywhere from 41 to 592 shared centimorgans, but the average is 229. Again, this range is because of recombination, and don't be surprised if you and your sister both test with the same company and end up matching the same person with different numbers of shared centimorgans. 
What I will do, though, is first look at those relationships whose average shared centimorgan is closest to the number that I share with the match that I'm working on. There are some advanced techniques that you can use to better spend your time targeting matches that are likely to reflect relationships that you're interested in exploring more deeply, but that's really outside the scope of what I can cover today. But what I described is pretty much how it works. It's actually surprisingly easy and a lot of fun. Fun, but what use is it to figure out how you're related to a bunch of random strangers on the internet? Well, it may be of little use, or it may be that thing that breaks down a brick wall. It all depends on the match and the relation. But think about this example. Let's say your grandmother never knew who her father was. He was never in the picture when she was growing up, and her mother never volunteered any information. That's going to be a pretty hard brick wall to get past if there were never any civil records created to document a marriage or who the birth father was. But you've gone and tested your DNA. One of your closer matches is someone who appears to be fairly close to you in age and shares 125 centimorgans with you. You look and see what possible relationships that might reflect, and begin verifying and expanding on their tree, in your own private tree, of course. You discover that your match's maternal great-grandfather lived in the same town as your great-grandmother. Looking at a census document from 1900, you see that, in fact, not only did he live in the same town, but he lived four doors down and was the same age as your great-grandmother. That doesn't confirm anything really by itself, but now you can track down other living descendants of this man and see if they also have tested their DNA. Or, if appropriate, you can reach out to them and see if they would be interested in testing. That can be a challenge, though, and getting strangers to test their DNA to help you with your own genealogy is a topic best left for another day. Either way, investigating your DNA match turned what was likely to be a lifelong brick wall into a live research project with some good leads. So speaking of good leads, if you haven't already tested, you might be wondering where should you go to get your test done? You know, your usual options are ancestry, family heritage, family tree DNA, and there's a handful of others, but where should you go? Ancestry.com by far has the largest database, and so you're likely to get some pretty decent leads from them. But there's another reason to go to Ancestry for your initial test. It's because most of the other testing sites let you upload your DNA there and see what sorts of matches you get from their database. Ancestry.com does not let you do that. So I would recommend test with Ancestry and then upload to as many of the other sites as you're comfortable with. So I've mentioned twice now that as you build out these relationships between you and your matches, that you should do so on your own private tree. I really do encourage keeping your initial DNA investigation work private. There is a number of reasons for this, but one of the big ones is because DNA testing can reveal unexpected relationships. More than one person has been shocked when their DNA results indicate that the people that they have known their whole lives as family aren't, in fact, biologically related to them. This may be something that you discover about yourself, and that's something that you need to think about before even testing. But you don't want to unnecessarily cause drama and heartache in the lives of others if you don't have to. And you don't have to. So keep your work private. If you do discover an unexpected relationship within your own close family, take a deep breath first and do some serious thinking. People have discovered that their father wasn't biologically their father, They've learned that their sister is only their half-sister or maybe not even related at all. In some extreme cases, wives have learned that they are closely related to their husbands. 
So before you pick up the phone and start swinging that wrecking ball, take a breath and do some thinking. You only get one chance to approach this topic with someone in your family the right way. So I'd encourage you to think about if and how you want to approach that. If you do, just know that it has the potential of forever altering your relationships with your loved ones. So that's probably a good place to start wrapping things up. Sorry to end on a serious note, but I did feel like it was something that I needed to at least talk about. Everything I talked about today was primarily about autosomal DNA testing, but some of it also applies to other tests that you can get, like the X, Y, and mitochondrial DNA tests. I may tackle those tests separately in a future episode, but in the meantime, there's a lot of great places you can go online to learn about using your DNA results, and I'll link to some of those in the description. But I wanted to leave you with one good book recommendation. Blaine T. Bettinger's The Family Tree Guide to DNA Testing and Genetic Genealogy is a great introduction to all different types of tests and goes into much more detail than I have. He's a major name in genetic genealogy and chances are, if you spend much time at all looking into the topic, you'll run into his stuff. If you haven't already, I hope you get your results soon. Get started digging into the genealogical repository that is your own DNA. I'd love to hear from you if you find something interesting that you'd like to share. Feel free to message me at the WGT Pod on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.